Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. The intersection of military and political affairs is one that has fascinated and troubled scholars and practitioners of civil military relations alike for, well, as long as there has been war. From Clausewitz's famous phrase, war is politics by other means, to Huntington's normal theory of separation of spheres, to Risa Brooks's paradoxes of professionalism, we here at the War Colleges frequently debate and challenge the degree to which the politics should be a part of military strategy, and the degree to which the military should be involved in politics and political decision making. Today, the relationship between politics and the military is more fraught than it's been in recent memory. Many argue that American society today is hopelessly polarized and that the military is being drawn not just into political but partisan conflicts, resulting in what we call the politicization of the military and violating major norms of American civil military relations. Domestic social divisions that divide along partisan lines have resulted in congressional hearings about wokeness, holds on military promotions, distrust in some parts of Congress of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and, according to some polls, a decline in public trust in the military. This should lead us to ask, what is the relationship between American domestic politics and civil military relations? Is polarization contributing to the politicization of the force? To what degree is politicization a problem for U.S. civil military relations today? Here to discuss this with us today is Major Michael Robinson. Major Robinson, comma, PhD, is an active duty U.S. Army strategist currently serving as the military advisor in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. He is a former assistant professor of international affairs at the United States Military Academy, a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations, a selectee for Johns Hopkins National Security Scholars and Practitioners Program, and was a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Most importantly for us, he is the author of the book, Dangerous Instrument, Political Polarization and U.S. Civil-Military Relations, which analyzes the degree to which partisan politics are affecting the U.S. military and civil-military relations today. He holds a Ph.D. and M.A. in Political Science from Stanford University and a B.S. in International Relations from the United States Military Academy. Major Robinson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I want to start very basic, because we hear a lot about how we live in such a polarized society, but it seems like everyone has a different idea about what that is and what it means. Um, so how would you kind of define political polarization for us? Well, it certainly is the right place to begin. Uh, it, it, one of the key insights I think that the book tries to get at is how some of the terms that we 
use in the American political discourse, polarization being one of them, maybe are in in need of uh, greater fidelity or greater clarity uh, so that the recommendations we build to correct them are properly calibrated. And polarization, as American political scholars would probably try to articulate, gets at something pretty fundamental, which is the idea of a sort of ideological sorting across the political spectrum that is so acute uh, that the the poles between uh, you know resident communities of political philosophy are are distant. There's no shared kind of common ground, uh, and this can be uh, geographic in nature. It can be urban versus rural. It can be young versus old. There's a lot of different uh, demographic factors that may feed into contemporary polarization. But maybe one of the more remarkable aspects about polarization today is the fact that it is not just about the realm of policy. Uh, it's not that just Americans of different partisan stripes. Dis- disagree on the best ways for government to act in certain issue areas, it's increasingly affective in nature. Uh, This is something that scholars like Chantua Yangar, Liliana Mason talk about at length, which is the idea of a social or affective polarization, that it is uh, tribal, it's identity-based. It is having sort of a negative connotation or a negative uh, mindset about other individuals in society based on their partisan allegiance, not merely about policy disagreements. And it's because of the uh, acute social psychological uh, consequences of polarization uh, thusly defined that makes it such a, a challenge when we talk about the politicization of other institutions. So when we talk about affective polarization, which you're defining as kind of a a sense of other, um, sometimes I, I hear my colleagues when they're talking about polarization, they say, you know, we are, we've sorted into kind of unique tribes in American society, that there's a lot less of kind of cross-cutting cleavages, that if I know your zip code and I know you wear Nikes and I know that you uh, have a certain level of education, then I can predict not only who you vote for, but what a, your kind of political beliefs are along a whole spectrum of issues. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? There certainly is a a very rich uh, literature within political science that would make the argument for precisely what you articulated, which is one of the key ways we can detect polarization when it occurs is that there are uh, very few cross-cutting identities. And so if you do have information on, say, a survey respondent's age, race, religion, level of education, geographic location, you may be able to more accurately intuit what their partisan alignment is uh, more closely than you would if there was a uh, a more multimodal distribution of, of ideological sensibilities. Instead, we have very tight, very ideologically coherent communities where there is no cross-cutting calm in the middle, to use Mason's term. So how did we get here? Um, this hasn't always been the case in U.S. history. So what are, what are some of the factors that are contributing to this polarization in the U.S. today? There are certainly uh, several, and, and we're talking about sort of decades-long unfolding trends in American politics to arrive at the sort of state of affairs we observe today. Uh, some of it is sort of the evaporation of a political middle uh, at the elite level when we talk about elected politicians Uh, Any sort of work on political polarization today will usually include some sort of graphical visualization of voting patterns over time, the sort of uh, tribal communities that voters form in blocks in the halls of Congress or even among state legislatures. And what we start to see over time is their separation away from uh, a sort of spatial middle. Uh, And a lot of that is a result of parties 
becoming more ideologically coherent in the way that we we, we just discussed. The idea that uh, you no longer have a, a sizable block of, say, conservative Democrats or liberal Republicans, that parties became an organizing principle by which you could have in ver- very ideologically coherent identity structures. Uh, and when we talk about uh, the the geographic distribution of individuals into specific areas of the country, we start to see that there's a very sharp urban versus rural distinction, uh, college educated versus non, white versus non-white, men versus women, uh, that they increase become useful proxies for understanding uh, partisan identity, and that would be more at the mass level. So at, at both the elite and mass levels, we do observe today sort of the culmination of decades of slow separation uh, to the detriment of some shared political center uh, that which may have existed in, in, in some prior period in American history. So when I think about ideological coherence, that seems to me to be a good thing. Oh, I've got a party platform that's ideologically coherent as opposed to incoherent. What are some of the challenges that ideological coherence sort of poses to legislating then? I think if you were to read uh, a lot of the research done by congressional scholars, as they would say that it, while it does provide a sort of ready-made uh, set of policy preferences, it also can lead to a certain amount of inflexibility. Uh, and in a two-party system where you know we think about uh, vote choice being a function of how I'm close to one candidate or another, uh, that inflexibility can lead to very rigid political sensibilities. And that could in turn be a symptom of and a contributor to the loss of some sort of cross-cutting set of identities in a, in a quote-unquote political middle. Um, so I'm going to turn to the U.S. military here, um, away from from the treacherous you know waters of American politics. Um, we'll come back to that, and and ask you you know the U.S. military has traditionally been seen, and many would argue it's essential that it is um, a nonpartisan institution. Um, so how do you define kind of nonpartisan? Um, is there is there kind of a special sauce here or, you know, we hear definitions between being apolitical versus nonpartisan versus I read somewhere on the Internet, bipartisan military. Um, so how do we think about, you know, the the politicalness of the U.S. military? Well, it probably helps to begin with maybe a concept that some of your listeners are likely already aware of if they're if they're keen observers of civil military relations, which is the idea that for a free society to function and to have a military which can perform its its principal role as as national security guarantor for both of those things to be true uh, there have been a lot of different proposed national security architectures whereby a free society under civilian control and a competent military are both equally possible the consensus across all of them seems to be that you have to avoid the military being subject to a form of partisan capture. It, it can't be that the military is the instrument of a specific subset of the American people. It has to be the instrument of the American people broadly construed. It has to be a, a servant of the state. This is frequently conflated with the idea that the military should be an apolitical entity. And I think, as many other scholars have, have written more eloquently than I, uh, that this is actually uh, misses the point entirely. And one need not have to reread their Clausewitz to understand that there is probably nothing more political than engaging in the act of, of war fighting. When we talk about nonpartisanship, we talk about an institution that is through a series of both regulations and, and statutory guardrails, but also professional norms insulated from the churn of partisan politics that is subject to civilian leadership agnostic of their political alignment. 
So when we talk about the military becoming politicized then, like what do we mean by that? Well, this is, again, an opportunity to maybe clarify a, a term which sees a lot of use but not a lot of clarity, which is the idea of politicization. And if you have encountered this term in the past, usually the context in which you would observe it is an institution, an issue area, perhaps even an individual that is being ascribed some partisan political valence when there are reasons to suspect that the social good would be to not have them be subject to partisan politics at all. So we think about uh, nonpartisan institutions in American society or ones in which we would want there to be unvarnished expert opinion. You think about the medical research community. You think about, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a perfect world, you would think about things like academic research or, ma- or, or journalism, right? These are fields where we would want to have uh, general objectivity. Uh, the challenge with politicization today is that the bounds of partisan polarization are so wide and they have spilled over into so many other areas of American society that it started to sort of pull in these secondary and, and tertiary battlefields that were not designed to be extended fronts for partisan uh, politics or the partisan political fray. Applied to the military, as we can talk about at length, this gets exceedingly complicated because even amongst other institutions, they do not have the independent authority to resist outside politicization because uh, of the the very necessary and, and very uh, essential liberal democratic framework of civilian control. So let's put the two together then. Um, as we think about kind of polarization inside the United States um, and, you know, thinking about kind of politicization and what that means for traditionally nonpartisan institutions. So how how is polarization today impacting the U.S. military? Well, it's probably fair to say that there are a number of ways in which we are observing the military more in a partisan political spotlight uh, than we did in in years past. Uh, This isn't to say that this is purely an artifact of of the last decade of American politics. It has been, like most things, a slowly evolving trend. Uh, But politicization applied to the military context can take on a number of different forms. And these can vary based on whether or not the military is actually the agent taking some sort of political action, whether or not they're doing that intentionally, or whether or not it's uh, some sort of empirical fact or merely the perception that that is the case. So politicization in, in the book is a term which is a broader definition, which is to say it is not merely cases in which a nonpartisan institution is using itself or being used for partisan political advantage. It is also cases in which that is merely the perception. Uh, Because in the information environment in which we exist, in one which has seen a lot of media fragmentation in keeping with the polarization that we've spoken about already, uh, individuals are highly reliant on third-party voices for forming an opinion about institutions like the military. Uh, And the politicization of that institution could compromise uh, a credible voice from an expert community in, in national security. So what are the ways in which the military might be politicized? You know, you talk about the differences between perception versus actively kind of wading into political waters. Um, how, how do we kind of determine the different types of politicization that could potentially happen? Well, by no means should the typology that uh, that I lay out in the book be considered an exhaustive one. There are certainly different modes of politicization that I'm sure uh, would would fit in an extended uh, version of this. But uh, what I've kind of outlined is various forms of politicizing activity that vary based on whether or not it is actually the military doing the acting, uh, whether or not it is uh, civilian actors who are directing it, 
uh, and then whether or not it is actually merely the perception uh, of military activity being in favor of one party or maybe hostile to another. And that can be a function of really three different actors in the political space, the military itself, uh, the public, which is observing the military, uh, and then the sort of political guideposts in the background, usually given by the political parties. So uh, in the book, you describe kind of four four parts of this, right? Active, passive, relative, and aspect. Um, for those of us who have not read your book or for the listeners who have not read your book, can you describe in a little bit more detail sort of uh, each one? Sure. So active politicization is probably the most intuitive. It's probably the one that if an individual pulled off the street were asked to define a military politicization, it's probably uh, an example that would would fit more cleanly under active politicization as a concept. And this is really instances in which the military or representatives of the military institution engage in some sort of behavior that creates the impression that the party uh, that is receiving that 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 action is more proximate to the military than the other, or to state it as a negative, that the military is more favorable to the interests of one political party over another. Examples of this may include things like partisan political endorsements from retired military officers, uh, or even actions taken by active service members, such as politicking or alliance building uh, amongst elected politicians for certain policy preferences. I take care in this case to extend representatives of the military institution to include the retired community, because even if they have been relieved from the regulatory self-censorship that's necessary while you're in active service, they do still represent the institution to many Americans who may not be able to draw the difference. So why do we think that Americans can't tell the difference between retired generals and active duty generals? Well, there's a certain extent to which this is something that we may actually excuse to a certain uh, degree, and that is because they are often depicted as such. They carry the rank and service and oftentimes assignment history with them into post-service life. Uh, you would see uh, nominees for high-ranking political posts. They appear before Congress, and and depending on which cable news uh, outlet you're watching, they are maybe chironed as lieutenant general retired. I mean, if you're lucky, maybe you get the retired. Uh, but the rank <laughs> is in there nonetheless, and this can create... Uh, a blurring effect between the active and retired communities, one that is actually made more complicated when we consider the fact that you may have members of Congress who are in the National Guard or in the Reserve while they are serving in office. And this serves to further blur the line between active duty service members uh, and, and the retired or veteran community. Yeah, I've often heard said that uh, once you get promoted beyond colonel, your name becomes your first name is general for the rest of your life. And that, that incurs a sense of kind of ownership and responsibility with it. I think that is a fair assessment. And, and as, uh, as Richard Cohn would, would say, that like princes of the church, they carry that rank forward with them for the rest of their lives, for better or worse. Uh, okay, so talk to me a little bit about what passive politicization is then. So passive politicization is similar in that it is still the military engaging in some sort of behavior or it is the military that is sort of the visual aspect uh, of some kind of political activity. But the difference between active and passive is that in the passive case, it is not the military that is doing it of its own accord. Uh, so these would be instances in which the uh, civilian leadership or external forces are sort of pulling the military institution into a partisan political spotlight. Uh, this can be achieved through various ways, but maybe, maybe the most visual is the use of military iconography or the trappings of military service for partisan political advantage 
either without the permission of or over the the express uh, uh, reticency of the military uh, itself. So the Trump administration was kind of famous for norm breaking around this particular regard. We have uh, Trump regularly saying, you know, my generals and using the Hall of Heroes to announce the Muslim ban and all kinds of uh, different kind of activities that attempted to kind of capture or uh, portray the military as being on his side. But surely this phenomenon was not contained to just the Trump administration. So are there kind of more mundane examples or historical examples uh, beyond recent memory that we might be able to point to when we're talking about this kind of passive politicization? Certainly. And it would be incorrect to suggest that any presidential administration or period of time has a monopoly on this type of behavior, even if it appears uh, with greater frequency uh, or, or less frequency over time. Uh, maybe some more classic examples of what might be considered passively politicizing behavior are uh, speeches made uh, by elected officials to an audience of military service members when those speeches take on a certain political valence, when they appeal to the military in one form or another as an extension of a partisan constituency. Uh, it is different, for instance, to speak to an audience in the capacity as commander-in-chief to uniformed service members than making uh, a call to action, right, or, uh, or to to speak to military service members as if they have some sort of partisan allegiance as part of their identity uh, as being in the military. You, you note, noted some other examples in which using military backdrops or iconography for uh, partisan political activity can create the, the idea of an implicit approval or implicit sanction from the military institution that may not be true. Uh, and so those cases, more broadly construed, would be cases of, of passive politicizing activity. Again, the military is the one who is front and center and is the one who is perceived to be doing the moving, but the moving is not their own design. So why do civilians do this? Why do they care so much about portraying to the public that the military approves of them or supports them? Like, why do we care so much about military opinion? Well, perhaps the, the most uh, the simplest answer to your, to your question is because the military for a curious amount of time has been one of the most trusted institutions in U.S. society. Obviously, there's a, a certain number of caveats to our definition of that term. And and uh, and Peter Fever's outstanding book on the subject certainly digs into this more keenly. But since really since 9-11, there have been uh, an extreme outpouring of public confidence and trust in the military institution that seems to have resisted two decades of organizational scandals and battlefield stalemates, a lot of things that you might think would bring those numbers back down to earth. Because the military is so highly regarded, their implicit endorsement of political activity is certainly something that you can imagine uh, would be worth uh, co-opting for partisan political advantage. And for that reason, uh, you might see these types of activity engaged for that purpose. So I'll put in a plug and say that uh, we have a podcast that we did with Dr. Fever uh, that was released in June. And so uh, listeners should go check that one out if they want more on uh, his work about kind of sources of public trust in the military. Um, all right, let's get to the last two aspect parts of kind of how you think about the ways that the military might become politicized, this kind of relative and aspect politicization. So these are two forms of, of politicization that I added to the topology because I thought it was necessary to account for 
maybe these more perception-based instances of politicization, ones in which the military wasn't actually engaging in any meaningful policy shifts, uh, but that the actors around them in the political space were. And the perception, uh, even if illusory, is that the military is still being subject to some form of partisan capture. So relative politicization is when it's not as not the military that is the the moving actor, but rally, rather it's that political backdrop provided by the partisan establishments that is moving in the background. So if I'm the public and I'm observing the military relative to these guideposts in the background and those guideposts are moving, I may mistakenly interpret it as the military moving towards one side or the other. This is probably most easily set up by talking about party extremity. So if there is, as a function of polarization, which, which we've talked about, is not just ideological coherency, but also ideological extremity, is if you have extreme policy position taking in certain issue domains, uh, it can expose a sort of daylight between that partisan establishment and the military if the military is standing still. And it can create maybe the false impression of hostility or amenability to a specific partisan agenda. By contrast, aspect politicization is when it is not the background or the military that seems to be moving, but rather the observing public themselves. Uh, and this is because as a function of the information they're likely to receive, uh, they may draw different conclusions about the objective, the objectivity of the military, uh, and they themselves are moving along some sort of ideological spectrum. So how much of this has to do with the information environment. You've mentioned the information environment a couple of times now in in this conversation. Um, how is the changing information environment sort of affecting these trends or these phenomena? Well, we did say at the beginning of this conversation about polarization that one of the uh, most visible symptoms of it was this sort of fragmentation of media. And one of the, uh, the key ways that individuals are drawing their conclusions about the military, failing firsthand experience or having a family member in the service, is through third-party voices. And there is obviously a very robust field of research in political science looking at the power that elite voices can have in shaping public opinion, particularly when those elites are trusted figures. And so those media outlets, depending on how they report on the military, how frequently they do, and the valence that that reporting takes on can very much shape public attitudes about the objectivity of the military or the belief that it is more amenable or more hostile to a specific partisan establishment. One of the things that we've observed more recently uh, is those numbers that I, told, I talked about of, of high public confidence in the military are now starting to come back down for the first time in quite a while. Uh, and that is, if you look at the, the kind of undergirding trends, is purely a function of partisan Republicans for the first time are expressing less trust in the institution than they did even a few years ago. And this tracks very closely with the sort of hard turn that conservative media has made in the way they report on the military. It'd be very difficult to divorce those two trends. And so the way the military is reported in partisan media outlets of various stripes can affect how the public draws its own conclusions, real or imagined, about the activity the military engages in. So this takes me to um, a, a similar question, but, but a little bit different that, you know, you're touching on that. How does politicization then, assuming, you know, any, any of these four things, how does that impact this kind of trust in the military and um, American faith and confidence in the military? Well, it's probably not difficult to surmise some of the damage that politicization could do, especially to a, an institution which has managed to maintain a, a high level of public trust over time. 
uh, is the belief that if the military is no longer a credible, fair dealer or nonpartisan voice, that that confidence will start to collapse, that it will start to be viewed the way other institutions in U.S. society are viewed if they are seen as merely a secondary or tertiary partisan battlefield. Uh, I think Dr. Fever in his previous stop on this podcast mentioned specifically that the experience of the Supreme Court may be educational here as an institution that in recent decades uh, was one of the one of the institutions that was almost as highly regarded as the military and that 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 respect and that, that trust and confidence started to taper, the more it was seen that the court was actually a forum for hashing out political disputes. If the military were seen as a similar forum, uh, you could imagine that that trust would go away. And in an all-volunteer force where we recruit from a very uh, diverse uh, uh, broadband of society. You could imagine that a public that is now skeptical of a military institution is less likely to enlist. You could imagine that civilian leaders who are reliant on military advice and information for making national security choices may be more skeptical about its credibility, that the cascading effects of politicization don't stop merely with the idea that uh, surveys would come back with less trust in the military. So building on that, um, you know, we here at A Better Peace, we're interested in American politics and U.S. civil military relations, but we're also interested in the broader world and what's going on uh, outside of the United States. So is the U.S. unique in these trends towards polarization and politicization of the military? Uh, what can we learn from other countries that may be experiencing kind of trials and tribulations? Well, it's great that the comparative angle is something that we can talk about. It is often something that gets short shrift in a conversation about civil military relations. And and to be fair, American civil military relations as a form of, of academic study for a long time, I think maybe marginalized the the challenges that the, the U.S. case presents because there was always a low probability of uh, of, mil of civil military issues you would observe in more autocratic societies, for instance, coup, uh, or the, the idea that the military would pose a threat to domestic governance. We don't have the tradition of that in the United States. And, uh, and so the comparative cases can be instructive more as cautionary tales for what might happen if the normative firewalls that exist between the civil and military realms were to erode completely. Um, and so maybe some good points of comparison, or at least maybe data points that are helpful for understanding what happens when the military is pulled unduly into a partisan political spotlight or inserts itself into the same. Um, the recent activity in, in Israel over concerns that the executive was taking over judicial authority resulted in many Israeli service members uh, threatening to or, or not uh, arriving on duty. Um, this is an example of uh, when the military is put into close political focus as a check against perceived democratic backsliding. It can be very tempting, particularly in societies where there is high trust in the military, to see them as the solution to political stalemate or gridlock. But we should be very cautious about the, the negative lessons that, uh, that exercising that type of thinking can result in. Uh, there is a reason why we want both a competent but subordinate military, and it was because that is not the that is not the fix to partisan political disputes. The military is not the institution that is the solution to those problems. Instead, at the end of the day, the end user of democracy is the voting public, and so we should look to cases like Israel and, and some other cases more recently uh, that may be instructive on the dangers of seeing the military as a solution to political stalemate. 
So how do we get out of this situation then? If we have this kind of politicization happening in the United States, but the military is not the answer. So what is the answer? What actions can or should military leaders take, political civilians take? Um, who's who's responsible for getting us out of, of this kind of trend and spiral? Well, like most things, I would suspect that the answer will be a group effort. Uh, <laughs> to a certain extent, the the military can take measures to ensure that they socialize the, the rank and file and, and the leadership to the importance of the nonpartisan norm. And that is where professional military education institutions like the U.S. Army War College are principally important, is that it is an opportunity for the future leaders of the service uh, to get classically educated on civil military norms and their importance, not just rote memorization and internalization of why the norms are worth preserving. And it can't just be the war colleges. It has to be from our commissioning sources all the way up through the senior service colleges uh, and, all, and, and frankly, not just compartmentalized to the officer corps. This is something that the, uh, the, the non-commissioned education system should incorporate as well. But the responsibility does not purely fall on military actors, as we said here, of the of the four types of politicizing activity that we outlined. Uh, really, only two of them can be accounted for uh, purely by controlling military activity. Uh, civilian leadership is going to be key in in curtailing the more damaging ramifications of, of politicization. And so when it comes to politically dicey subjects, it would be more appropriate for civilian political appointees, both in, in the Pentagon and elsewhere in the, in the executive branch, to be the ones to make that case for the public, for Congress, rather than relying on uniformed service members to wade into that, into that partisan political fray. Finally, it would benefit all parties involved to ensure that the extent to which military iconography or imagery uh, or the implicit endorsement of the military institution is pulled into partisan politics is limited as much as possible. Uh, this means limiting the the use of, for instance, individuals using military rank and their uniform for campaigning for political office. That can only really serve to confuse the public on the, the clear distinctions between the active and veteran communities. Uh, we also want to make sure that uh, Political rhetoric, as heated as it can get, never rises to the level of approving political violence of any type. Uh, we've seen two instances in, in the last several years in which the military was deployed to American streets, uh, and they were either exacerbated by or launched by partisan political skirmishes. And we would want to be able to limit, if not eliminate, the need for, for those kinds of cases to be repeated in the future. And so the burden does lie across a broad swath of actors, both military and civilian. Uh, but I cannot stress enough the primacy that civilian leadership will likely have in any eventual solution. Well, I appreciate the shout out for PME. I didn't even pay him to say that. Um, and this about ends our time. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Major Robinson, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening in to our series on modern civil military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode, and then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. 
Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.